Psalm 11. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like the bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. The instant you're confronted with fear, your body physiologically releases a whole host of responses that give you the best chance of staying alive. So, for example, your body instantly releases adrenaline, the hormone adrenaline, which increases your concentration, decreases your perception of pain, and gives you a burst of strength. That's pretty awesome. Um, You also release the hormone cortisol, which helps metabolize glucose for immediate energy, and it shifts blood flow from your digestive system, because you don't really need to digest that burger if you're about to die. So it shifts that energy to your heart and your legs. Your blood pressure and your heart rate immediately increase. And this may be one of those things you actually notice. is like my heart is racing and I'm breathing faster. And all of that is sending more blood to your limbs and it's oxygenating that blood so you can move faster and be stronger. And you start sweating, which cools your body. And your muscles contract, which is why your hairs stand up on your skin because it's preparing you for optimal performance. Well, what I've just described for you is what psychologists call the human's fight or flight response. That within milliseconds of a fearful provocation, you are preparing, whether you know this or not, to punch back or to run for your life, fight or flight. But it's not just your body that has instinctive immediate responses to fear. Your heart, your soul, and I don't mean your organ, I mean your affections, your desires, that your inner person, your soul, your mind, respond to fear in similar fashion as well. And that's kind of what we see here in Psalm 11. So the first few verses here, Dave is going to show us a natural instinctive response to fear But then he's also going to go into a more faithful and thoughtful, thought-out response. And here's what I think we'll see. Here's kind of like the one big idea this morning. David's saying, don't run from your problems. Run to God with your problems. Don't just run from your problems. Run to God with your problems. And he says that with these five things, okay? Number one, the counsel of fear. Number two, the consolation of faith. Number three, the cup of fury. Number four, the certainty of our foundation. And number five, the center of focus. And I'm sure those were the five points that David had in mind when he wrote this short psalm. So background, David is in trouble. And it's clear from the context that someone is probably pursuing him and his allies, his friends, 
to take their lives. He's under attack. And like so many Psalms, we don't know any specifics. Now, it may be, it may be Saul, it may be Absalom, it may be a whole enemy army or kingdom that's come against him. We don't know. And in fact, the not knowing, in a sense, is helpful because there's enough ambiguity here that we're not like, well, I can't relate to those circumstances. We actually, in many ways, can look at a few verses that are fairly vague and say, I can relate. And I can relate, number one, to this counsel of fear that his friends are giving him in verses one through three. Now, you'll notice there's one phrase at the very beginning. David leads off with his own confidence. He says, in the Lord, I take refuge. But then immediately what follows, he's like, how can you say? And now he's gonna start sharing the counsel that he's getting from his friends, from his advisors, from his allies, that is coming from a place of fear. That's that knee-jerk reaction where they say this, flee like a bird. So they're saying to David, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations, David, are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I want you to just notice first where the focus goes when you're under attack. His friends, understandably, are like, David, look at these bad people. Look at this problem. Look at this scary stuff. Look at what they're capable of. Look what's probably going to happen to us. And they're like, oh, no. And if you're anything like me, you can relate. If you're anything like me, many of your daily conversations with friends and family revolves around things like, here are people that are making my life really difficult right now. Here are the frustrating and threatening situations going on in my life right now. Here's how those things are impacting me negatively. Here's how I feel about it, and here's what I think I'm going to do. Hopefully you can relate some of your inner dialogue or some of your inner really monologue. It's not, you're, not, you're not listening to God in a sense. You're, you're just talking to yourself, and it revolves around stuff like this. A lot of your stress and your anxiety and your worry revolves around things like this. Much of your conversation with others, especially complaining, revolves around things like this. And what does it say about your focus? The Christian author and counselor Ed Welch calls this when people are big and God is small. When circumstances are big and God is small. And you notice in threatening circumstances, our focus, our immediate knee-jerk response focus takes our thinking down this path of you're making my life hard. I'm threatened. Oh no, stuff's going to be really bad. This is all negative and here's what I think I need to do about it. And there's a fight or flight response. But I want you to notice right in the text, there's this thing that we call worst case scenario thinking. Okay, look at this. They're like, David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, if you go down What hope is there for the rest of us? Like we're all in deep trouble. We will all be killed if the foundation of this kingdom of Israel is destroyed. And so they actually lead off with their conclusion, flee like a bird to the mountain. Okay, so they're processing like we're under attack. David, if you die, if if your kingdom falls, then all of us associated with you, we're going to die too. So they're like, we got to get someplace safer. We got to we got to get out of Jerusalem and get up to a mountain and find a bunker somewhere and, and hunker down and save ourselves. And 
again, can you relate with what I'm calling here worst case scenario thinking? Do you ever do that where there's an immediate encounter of fear and you play this little game in your mind? You're like, okay, what's, what's the best this could go? What's the worst this could go? And you start thinking of the most severe possible outcome to kind of prepare yourself for how this could go. So this sounds a lot like this in everyday life. We're like, okay, this person said this. And if I assume the worst possible interpretation and least charitable interpretation of what they said, then, oh, this is really bad. Or we say, oh no, like this, you, you see this on social media all the time. Oh, this candidate got elected, this law got passed, this judge just handed down this ruling. And so freedom as we know it will never exist again. Or we'll say, I'm dealing with this situation at work and I can already see where this is going to go. Or my doctor just called and didn't leave a message. So I know it's terrible news. Or I hear this in the church. Fewer and fewer people believe like me as a Christian. So I have a terrible feeling that the church isn't going to survive and there just isn't going to be a place for people who think and believe like we do. And uh, let me just pause there before I go to this next point. I'm not rebuking you for having worst case scenario thinking. I'm saying it is a natural instinctive response. I would even say like there is a wisdom to saying, okay, here's the situation that just confronted me and my family or me at work or whatever. What is the range of things that God may be having me prepare for? Like, what's the best I think this could go? What's the worst I think this could go? Should I be wisely preparing for the future? And there's a ton of Proverbs and other scriptures like that where you're thinking through, like, I should be providing for my family. I should be thinking through. The, the concern is that this is not in this text. It's not coming from a place of trust or faith or confidence in God. The solution that they're led to because of this worst case scenario thinking is like, I either got to strike first or I got to get out of here. And one way or another, fight or flight, it's, it's kind of this philosophy. It's this way of thinking of like, I've got to save myself. God is not watching out for me. So I've got to do something. And I call that the, the counsel of fear because they're literally coming to David and they're like, here's our advice. And that advice is coming from a place of fear and not also like, okay, there was that initial fear. Now let's sit down and talk. What do we do as we trust God together? But that's more the second point, the consolation of faith. And I use that word consolation on purpose because consolation is like comfort, hope, encouragement. And what we see here and what David says in response to his friends is he's like, look, I trust God. And here's the way that trust is bolstering me from the inside out right now. So beginning in verse one, again, in the Lord, I take refuge, he says. But then jumping to verse four, he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. And I want you to notice four truths here in what David just said that he's using to console, to comfort, to encourage his own soul. Number one, he says, God is sovereign. That's verse four, where he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And I think this is kind of what David's thinking. He's like, yes, someone is marching on my throne in Jerusalem. That's in danger. That's in doubt. 
He's like, God's throne is in the heavens. It's unassailable. Like, you, you can try to attack God, but it's like a bug like that's just bothering you. It's like, a, it's like a gnat. It's like a fly. It's not really threatening. It may be annoying, but he's saying, I serve a God whose authority is established in the heavens. And he's like, I may not be king for long, but I serve a God who is king of kings. He is in control. He will not be shaken. And uh, I know... Marty, just as she talks with different ones of you, this is kind of like a bedrock truth of our marriage as we also, like you, go through financial struggles or legal threats or threats to our health, threats to our employment, threats to our insurance. As we face unfair personal attacks, we keep coming back to this. God is in control of this too. God is in control of this too. That truth is hardest to believe when you need it the most. Because we'll say like, yeah, God's in control. And then something happens in your life and you're freaking out about it. And so that word too is important. Like God is also in control of this thing. And that's what David's doing here is he's, he's like, I acknowledge my circumstance, but my focus is not on my circumstance. I've shifted my focus to a God who is in control, who is all-powerful, who is sovereign. But then he goes on here with the second truth. Not only is God sovereign, but he's attentive. This is the second half of verse 4. He says, his eyes see. And if you've been here or if you know the Psalms, one of the complaints in a number of the recent Psalms has been, God doesn't see, God doesn't hear, God doesn't care. And he's like, yes, he does. And it's important that the word see here is not just like, oh, yeah, I see what's going on. The word is like to gaze at or to observe with intent. And that's why I use the word attentive. It's not just that God sees. It's that he's deliberately looking. He's deliberately observing what's happening to his children. He's paying attention. Okay. That, that is such an important truth when you're like, I, I just don't believe that God is paying attention. I want to use the illustration of lifeguarding. When I was in high school and college, I lifeguarded at pools. I lifeguarded at this camp in North Carolina that had lakes and rivers and waterfalls and all this stuff. And uh, here's the secret about lifeguarding, if you don't know this. A lifeguard that's going in the water all the time to, like, rescue someone is probably not a very good lifeguard. Like getting in the water is actually the last thing you want to do as a lifeguard because you have the least control of that situation. So there are many times, like we had this water trolley and kids would go like jump off this big tower. And, uh, you know, some of the kids, like their hands are wet and they immediately slip off and they're falling like 20 or 30 feet into the water. And, and, And they're all like immediately coming up, just sputtering and confused and scared and 99% of the time, they're perfectly fine. But sometimes they're like looking around for like, why why didn't the lifeguard come in for me? You know, and then we hug each other and both drown, you know, which doesn't help anybody. Um, And there's all kinds of situations like that where you're like, I'm attentive. I'm I'm paying attention to what's going on. And actually, from, from a standpoint of wisdom, you don't actually need what you think you need. It would not be best for you if I gave you what you thought you needed in that moment. But there are times where you go in, okay? I'm just thinking like God in his ultimate perfect wisdom 
This is a bedrock truth for David that, that God does see. He is attentive. He does care. He's not just all-powerful, but aloof. And he's not just like kind like your grandparents, but not strong enough to do anything about it. It's like he's both sovereign and attentive. And then thirdly, look at this. This is so important with our struggles, challenges, threats. He's like, God is purposeful. Okay, verse 4c, like the last part of verse 4 into verse 5, he says, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. And this sounds like, oh no, because we're back to school and it's like a test. Well, the, the word test here actually means to try something, to examine something, or to prove the genuineness of someone or something. So I want you to hear a couple of the verses that use this word. So Job, you know, one, one book earlier before Psalms, Job uses the word like this. He says, he, that is God, knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So you, you hear there that the test is not like, I'm putting you the test. Do you get an A, B, C, D? Or nope, you're failing in your relationship with God. He, he's saying God is doing something to examine, I would say even to refine Job's faith and character through this test so that he comes out as refined gold. Another psalm, Psalm 26.2, puts it this way, prove me, O Lord, and try me, test my heart and my mind. And it's the word prove that's actually the same Hebrew word there, prove me. So I, I hear test not as like, just thrust me into all these trials and see if I get an A or an F, but it's more like, God is purposeful in the threats that he's allowing you or even encouraging you to encounter in your life because he's refining, he's revealing. And when I say God is revealing something, he's not revealing something to himself. He's not sitting there in heaven like, man, I have no idea where you're at with your walk with me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thrust you into a threatening, challenging, fearful situation that's too big for you to handle. And then I'll see where you're at. Now, God already knows where you're at. You probably don't know where you're at. And so a lot of times the, the trials, the challenges, the threats that God brings into our lives are so that we can see, hey, there is a, there, there is a gap between my stated beliefs or what I think I believe to be true about God and my functional beliefs that I fall back on when it's actually hard. And that's an important gap just over time. I think part of our discipleship process, our apprenticeship to Jesus, is that gap hopefully is getting narrower and narrower. That we're like, I believe these things to be true about God. And then, bam, the next threat hits. And we're like, oh, I got some growing to do. So God is purposeful, even in the threats he allows and then David's looking at all this, and he's like, okay, so if God is sovereign and attentive and purposeful, even with the painful and threatening things in my life, then I'm going back to verse 1 to catch this one. Then God is our refuge. He's like, I can trust a God like that. And the word refuge here, hasah, means a place of safety, comfort, and rest. And how many of you need that when you're in the middle of a threatening, challenging, exhausting circumstance? Because you're like, well, I'm, I'm not going to be able to rest right? Unless there's safety. He, he can't just be like, well, the bombs are falling all around. The missiles are dropping all around. And you're just like, I'm, I'm good. I'm just rest. Unless you're like so completely exhausted, you just finally physiologically have to sleep. 
But the word refuge, safety, comfort, rest. And it's like, how do you say that in the middle of a war, David? And his friends are like, flee to the mountains, flee to a bunker. And what I hear David saying is like, I have a bunker and it's God. I have a fortress. I have a strong tower and it's God. A number of years ago on spring break, we were in like the Honolulu area of Hawaii, my first and only time to, uh, to that island. And uh, one of the famous hikes on this island is this place called Diamond Head, which is this old volcano. It's actually like this big circle crater, like right next to Waikiki Beach and a beautiful mountain that's like hundreds of feet tall right next to the ocean. You actually like to drive into this park, you, you drive through the side of the volcano into the crater and you park in the middle of the crater and you just think like, I hope this thing is still extinct because we're parked in the middle of this volcano and we're going to hike up to the rim. So we hike up there and like there's a very natural part of that hike. It's just beautiful. But also we get to the top and realize there's this whole series of World War II bunkers that are built into the side of Diamond Head. That you're at the very top and it's this, like in the rock of the volcano itself is like all this concrete and steel with these little slits. And you're like looking down on Waikiki and Honolulu and, and you know, Pearl Harbor is like way over there. But, but you're like, oh, I, I see why people like fortifications. I see why they like places of refuge because I have the high ground here. You know, I can see for a very long distance. I'm kind of camouflaged up here. My enemy doesn't know I'm here and I'm more easily able to defend this position and remain safe and at rest than just down there where it's obvious I'm down there and I'm protected. And what David's saying is, I view God like that. Like I've taken this hike and I've, I've fled to the mountains, but it's not a literal mountain and a literal bunker, but God is that kind of refuge for my life. I hope, I trust in him. So I want you to hear this. David's saying the consolation, as I use that word, the comfort, the encouragement, the hope is not, Christian, that bad and threatening things will not come into your life. He's not like, oh, the consolation, like once you finally get it, it's all just health and wealth and awesomeness. He says the consolation is that when those things come and they inevitably come, God is all of these things for you. He is sovereign. He is attentive. He is your refuge. Okay, now he shifts gears, and I'm calling this the, the cup of fury. You'll see why, verses 5 and 6. He says, as God is my refuge, he's also a just God. He's a righteous God. So he says, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Interesting, that word violence is the Hebrew word Hamas. Okay, and there's a terrorist organization with the same name because they're like, we are violence. It says, God hates violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And you may even like conjure up these images of a literal Sodom and Gomorrah that were so idolatrous, so sexually perverse, so hostile to truth and goodness in every form that God literally in the Old Testament rains down fire and sulfur and destroys the city. But, but more generally speaking, you see this like the portion of their cup. You're like, what's that? Well, it's, it's a common metaphor in the Bible for the wrath of God against sin. And it says it's their portion because it's like, 
if you do something good, you kind of earn a reward. If you do something bad, you earn a punishment that's fair both ways. Let me show you a couple of these things as I'm talking here about this first point that David's like, make no mistake, God rejects and punishes the wicked. That's the cup of fury. So a couple of the places we see this, like Psalm 75, verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bull, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, so this is Jeremiah talking, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. And there's a couple places we encounter this terminology in the New Testament, like Revelation 16, verse 19. The great city was split in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And the point in each of those passages that I just read is the wicked are essentially drinking the cup of God's punishment as their just portion. Like you did wrong and you did wrong and you did wrong and you refused to repent. And so what is your portion at the end of the day? It is to drink this cup of God's anger towards sin, God's justice against sin. And like, while this sounds ominous, I'm like, in one sense, this is great news that one day God will purge the earth of all wickedness and rottenness and hostility toward truth and beauty and goodness. But it's important to note, and you're all thoughtful people, so you probably already noticed. It's not just like those wicked people over there who are having to drink this cup of fury. It's not just those nations out there that are having to drink this cup of justice. It's also Jerusalem. It's also people who at one point in time considered themselves and in fact were a part of God's covenant people, Israel. And why is that? Well, according to verse 7, it's because the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And there's two sides to that coin. Because God is perfectly righteous and just, he both loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Because God is righteous, he says, the upright shall behold my face, but the crooked shall not behold my face. And the, again, there's just two sides of one truth. So here's the thing. What if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I mean, much like Jerusalem, much like the Israelites, like I trust God, but I've done bad things. I've failed to love God, give him first place in my heart at all times. I've failed to love my neighbor as myself. My life hasn't always measured up to the standard that God has clearly set for me in his word. I've fallen short, but I don't want the cup of God's judgment. So what hope is there for me? And I want to share with you the most shocking and counterintuitive time that this cup of God's fury against sin shows up in Scripture. So if you fast forward from the times of King David to the New Testament, the last time that Jesus, the Son of God, goes up to Jerusalem 
and has this Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. Do you know what he does next? The Bible says he, he leaves the walled city of Jerusalem. He goes down across the Kidron Valley, back up the other side to this place called the Mount of Olives. And there's an olive grove there called a garden in the New Testament, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, Jesus tells his disciples, like, watch and pray with me. And then he goes over here and he starts praying. And the disciples, you know, before they drift off to sleep, they notice, like, man, our Savior's in a tremendous amount of anguish. Like something's going on in his soul that we've never seen before. And Matthew 26 records these words. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he goes back and checks on his disciples. He wakes them up. Are you guys not going to watch and pray with me? And then it says, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And if you know the story, within hours of those prayers of anguish, Jesus will be arrested by Roman soldiers, tried by the Jewish religious council, beaten to a pulp, condemned to die on a Roman cross, and crucified by Pilate. Okay, at midday, the sky it will grow pitch black, and Jesus, the only perfect man who ever lived, died for sins he didn't commit. And if you're like, well, what's going on? Why did Jesus die? Well, the scripture gives lots and lots of true reasons why Jesus died. In this context, it's important to notice and let this sink in. Jesus came to drink the cup of God's fury. If you're like, why did Jesus come? Why did, why did the eternal son of God become a human being one of the correct answers is he became a human being so he could drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. Okay? He suffered. He bled. He agonized. He died on the cross. And there was no rescue for him because that's what my sins deserve. So I don't want us to ever forget these twin truths. I said, first of all, yes, God rejects and punishes the wicked. But do you know God was rejected and punished for the wicked also? He rejects and punishes wicked, but he was rejected and punished for the wicked. And the turning point in redemptive history is that moment when Jesus, the perfect, the eternal son of God, chooses to drink the cup of wrath that was our portion and by the way, what we do every week, if you don't understand this, Jesus offers you a different cup. Day by day, Jesus offers every single one of you a different cup. He says, this, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take this cup and remember my death until I return. What he's doing is basically saying, let me take your cup, you take my cup, I'll drink your portion for you and give you my portion. Your portion that you deserve, the portion that I deserve is 
hostility with God because of our brokenness, because of our sin. And Jesus says, I'll drink that down. I'll go to a cross. The Father will turn his face away. I'll suffer in your place to say, here's my cup for all of you. It's offered freely. Here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood shed for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me that our salvation is offered by free grace. It's a transfer. It's an exchange. Give me the cup of God's fury that I don't deserve so I can give you the cup of adoption, the cup of freedom, the cup of forgiveness that you could never earn, but I just want to give you as your God. Okay, so I can close quickly with these two things. I said number four is the certainty of our foundation. So Verse three, remember when David's friends and allies are calling him together and they're like, hey, David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And in a sense, they're, they're completely right. Okay, if the foundations of the kingdom are ruined, then the people that followed that king are probably ruined. But in a sense, at the same time, they're wrong. They're like, well, David, if, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, they're wrong because they assumed the foundations depended on David. And they don't. See, our foundation, as we sang about this morning, is Jesus Christ. Check this out. When, when Jesus asks his disciples, because they're talking about, like, Jesus, some people think you're Elijah. Some think, think you're this other Old Testament prophet that came back. Some think that you're the Messiah. Some people think you're a fraud. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for the bunch, and he says, you are the Christ, which means the Messiah, the son of the living God. And do you know what Jesus responds? He says, you're Peter. But then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Upon this rock, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, that is the foundation of God's kingdom. That is the foundation of the church. And he says, nothing, all the powers of hell cannot prevail against it. So here's the picture that he's saying. He's like, okay, your, your life is under attack. Your reputation is under attack. Your finances are under attack. Your health is under attack. Your, your job security is under attack. And he's like, so what's your foundation? What do you instinctively run to and say, I'm, I know I'll be safe because I'm, I'm building my defense on this. And, and the warning here in the text is an invitation. He's like, friends, your finances may crumble. Your health may crumble. Your relationships, your closest friendships, a, even a marriage could crumble. Your reputation could crumble. But because Jesus drank the cup that we deserve to drink, and because he died and conquered death, Jesus will never crumble. The, the, the rock-solid foundation, you're like, my refuge is Christ. I hope in him that will never crumble. That will never be destroyed. So we have a certainty of our foundation that even David's friends did not know. And then finally, the center of focus, verse 7. And you just, I just want you to notice just the contrast in the passage of like as David's friends who like trusted Yahweh are talking to him. Again, you just notice how their focus is like these people, these problems, these threats. It's scary. We got to go. We got to fly to the hills and be saved. And David's focus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know all that's going on. 
But we got to put our focus on a God who is sovereign, who is righteous, who loves righteousness, who says, the upright will behold my face. And again, I want to just close with this theme, this simple big truth that in our, our propensity, our instinctive response of like, I got to run from my problems. I got to run from these threats. I got to build some kind of foundation, some kind of defense. And, and God's like, okay, I, I see you. I love you. I'm not mad at you. But that is not a sufficient response to threats, to challenges, to fear. The only sufficient response is to run to God with those problems. Bring your baggage. Bring your fears. Bring your anxiety. Bring your, bring your plans. <laughs> like, God, worst case scenario, this is what I'm going to do about it. Like, you cool with that? Or is there a better hope than the best thing that I can imagine of how I would defend myself? Don't run from your problems. Run to God with your problems. Let's pray.